Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Today I have Tom Oliver. He's an author. The book is called The Self-Delusion, The Surprising Science of Our Connection to Each Other in the Natural World. I'm going to talk about um, his studies and his works, uh, interactions between land use and climate change and biodiversity. So, Tom, thanks for coming. Yeah, hi. Thanks for having me. If you would, tell me a bit about your background and how you got to this point, and then I want to ask you about your book and what you're working on today. Yeah, sure. So, um... I'm a professor at the University of Reading, in professor in applied ecology. I, so my background is in environmental science. I've always had an interest in, in biodiversity from growing up from a young age uh, in Malaysia and really been able to experience firsthand some of the, the kind of wonders of, of ants and strange looking insects over there. So I've always had a passion for protecting nature. But more recently, I've begun to work in areas like systems research, uh, trying to understand, for example, uh, I've had a couple of secondments with, with government trying to help with environmental policy. 
Uh, and then a part of systems thinking really is about uh, avoiding kind of superficial thinking and, you know, just a techno fix is going to solve everything or an economic solution and rather thinking about the deeper, uh, the deeper leverage points. So really about how people's, how we think about nature, how people's mindsets really are important for protecting nature. So that's really what's exciting me at the moment. Well, what do you gather is, um, I don't know, a common person's perspective on nature? Like what are some of the major perspectives you've heard? Well, I, I, there's such a diversity, and, and I think that's one of the important things to recognise. Um, some major global initiatives to protect uh, nature, uh, so organised by this uh, international committee called the International Platform for Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, so a bit of a mouthful. Uh, it's called IPBES for short. It's essentially a bit like the Intergovernmental Panel for Climate Change is, is like for climate. They were convened to really assess the evidence of what's happening to nature globally and think about provide that evidence towards solutions about what we can do and actually they made a bit of a mistake in a way which they've they've addressed to their to their credit of assuming that that everyone kind of has a very similar way of thinking about nature and we think about it in this very instrumentalist kind of utilitarian way that you nature has is there providing benefits for humans uh, even calling them ecosystem services um, and we can put a value on that, a monetary value in some cases, and kind of incorporate it into our mainstream economics. And that will essentially solve the problem by getting the prices right. We don't need to change how, who we are or what we do. We just need to get the prices right. But actually, many, many people don't think like that. And actually, especially many indigenous cultures, for example, or, and countries in the global south have much more of a view of nature, more akin to a kind of an ancestor, that, you know, mother nature and and we are part of nature and nature is part of us. And that's a very different understanding where it actually quite leads to quite different motivations and behaviours around our actions with regards to the environment. Well, can you be more specific on that? What do you mean? Like what, yeah, you know, sure, how would sure. you express, again, a common viewpoint on nature and then how does it affect that person's behaviour, their thoughts about nature, et cetera? So, yeah, so many countries in the world have actually become a lot more individualistic over recent decades. And, and that's particularly so for countries like the UK, the US, with a sort of Western culture, as it, as it were, sort of a, a broad stereotype. And that that uh, culture is, is, is not just of those countries. It's actually becoming, you know, much more widespread across the planet. And part of, you know, it has strengths, it has weaknesses. But one of the, the focus of that individualistic mindset is that we people tend to see themselves as much more discrete uh, individuals and we you know we're vying with each other in this kind of competitive marketplace and we have to build our self-esteem and sell ourselves as a brand and actually that mindset leads to if taken too far to, to the extreme can lead to uh, mental health problems where you know if people feel isolated they tend to feel lonelier and loneliness is strongly associated with with depression and anxiety but also it affects how we treat the environment. If we just looking out for ourselves and at the extreme end of that kind of narcissism is, is that extreme selfishness. Uh, you know, we, we don't care then for our impacts on other people or on other species. Whenever we buy something, even just a, you know, a packet of chips or a chocolate bar, those, the ingredients come from somewhere. And so our, our purchase has kind of a ripple effect across the whole planet. And it can lead to, you know, if that, product has unsustainable palm oil then it's essentially contributing to the the loss of um, rainforest habitats replacing them with with palm uh, palm oil plantations and actually if we're really individualistic and and just looking out for ourselves you know that that happens a lot 
Whereas when people have a sense of identity, which we see uh, other species as part of us, as much more of a kind of kin, we tend to look after them as more of a sense of, of self-care. We, we look after the planet, just like we look after our family. We don't see it as a kind of transactional relationship. We see, we, we kind of look after them because they're, they're part of us. They're part of, you know, our identity as a sort of family unit. And that sense of kinship can be extended. And actually many indigenous cultures do extend that sense of identity to the whole planet and all the species. And that leads to a greater sense of responsibility about what we buy or how we travel and actually that that can be one of the deep sort of solutions actually to some of these quite severe environmental problems we face so what is your perception of nature how has it changed over the years and what's your current perception and how is it informing your research so uh, i think i've um, i've always had an interest in in kind of uh, eastern uh, philosophy and and um, and religion so many religions like buddhism and and taoism have quite a clear sense that the self, the self as, a, as a, a discrete unit is an, is an illusion and that we're actually deeply connected to each other and, and the natural world. Maybe I, I wouldn't say those, find, those findings have influenced me, but equally I probably found them because that's, that's the kind of uh, feeling I have that, that seems like a, a deeper truth to me. What was, what was kind of encouraging is <clears throat> through my, I started my career as, as a scientist, as a straight ecologist and you know, interacting, uh, studying, for example, interactions between climate and land use and how they affect biodiversity. But actually, as, I, as my work has gone on, I've I realised that, 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 you know, that often that's just documenting the problems we face in ever more kind of articulate ways, you know. And actually, we know species are declining. We know we're in a biodiversity crisis. And the, solution, the, the question now is kind of, what do we do about that? So I've kind of moved my research to a much more applied angle and actually, some of the interest that I had when I was younger about my sense of connections to nature um, has been revealed to me, at least, as, as kind of a really crucial part of, of the solution. So just to make it more tangible to think, you know, I work on butterflies and um, there's lots of research uh, exploring how butterflies are declining. And we could extend those type of analyses to other species. So we've done analyses of over four and a half thousand different species in the UK. So not just butterflies, but, you know, beetles earwigs birds plants and we're capturing those overall trends in biodiversity we can try and understand what what um, the impacts of climate change are what what land use is doing but really the solutions don't lie in ecology they lie in what we're doing to the landscape and the climate and you know so for example the global food system and our global economy that's driving climate change so then you think well, okay how do we transform the food system how do we transform our economies and there, obviously lots of people have different suggestions for that one of the, the the kind of ways to transform systems that i feel is is neglected but it's starting to become much more recognized um encouragingly is this deeper um mindset uh, change and actually that's the root of of many of our institutions you know we talk about the economy or our legal systems etc but they're actually just composed of people's worldviews, past and present and if we want to change those systems we really need to to start changing uh, you know our, our mindsets and our worldviews. i believe Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. 
please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Well, I'm not, yeah. So what are some of the admonitions or suggestions in your book? And again, practically, what does that break down to? So changing your mindset, fine, but what, what can people do to have any impact on the environment? Yeah, great question. Great question. I, I wrote the book because I wanted to share some of the science of our, our connection. So it's kind of focused very initially on our, our bodies and the biology of our bodies, you know, that we're made of 37 or 38 trillion cells about this, uh, human cells but we've got the same number of bacterial cells in our body and uh, you know our bodies are con- continually rebuilding themselves so each cell is with us just a few weeks for our skin cells and our gut cells for example and so there's this kind of turnover of material and there's nothing there that's permanent or you know or or discreet about us we're kind of a flux of energy and matter obviously our dna is the the instructions that builds that body but that dna is borrowed from our ancestors and we pass it on to ancestors to come. So the physical sense of our bodies is, you know, we're not, we are deeply connected to, to the natural world. And our minds, actually, we think of, okay, that's me in my head. But actually, you know, every word that we hear, every even pheromones, smells uh, below the, the conscious radar, influencing our moods and our behaviours. So we're really, our minds are porous and we're kind of connected to each other. So that was the, the book in a nutshell, is presenting that kind of information. And then the latter half of the book is saying, well, why does that matter? And, and as I sort of started to suggest, it's it's important how we see ourselves because that's the root cause of many of our you know behaviours in the world. So the book, I wanted to, to present this evidence and it's a kind of evidence-based spirituality, if, if you were, because it's taking some of the messages of those philosophies and religions which say the self is an illusion. But rather than just saying that and, and kind of expecting people to, to believe it, this is trying to sort of show some of the evidence and people can decide for themselves. So as a scientist, I wanted to say, well, does it work? You know, if you present people with this evidence, you know, can you can you start to change mindsets and change behaviours? So I did a survey before, we, you know, there's a survey available as a QR code when people before people read the book, ideally, and afterwards. And so I, I could analyse whether it was... Um, effective in changing mindsets and it just showed that there's a significant increase in people's sense of connectedness to nature when you know engaging with the ideas in the book now that's absolutely not to say that it's just about you know get some knowledge and it will change our our identities what i think is more happening is that when we when we expose to some of those kind of what i feel are quite awesome you know facts and they're all things i've discovered but i've kind of you know, harvested them from across a broad range of sciences, from, you know, philosophy, from neuroscience and psychology to biology and sustainability. But those facts, I think, motivate people to then pursue practices, which can be really important in changing mindsets. So this is a long way of coming around to your question, because I think it's really important point to say, it's not just about information. And, you know, I could look at Olympic archer and i you know you could tell me in the theory of of how she's you know pulling back her her bow to fire the arrow into the target 100 meters away and i could understand the nuance all the kind of muscle changes and and uh, the, the exact movements but i wouldn't be able to do that i need to practice it i need to kind of actually change the neural connections in my body and similar for our brains the way we think 
to change the way we think requires kind of exercise and practice and, and thinking in a different way. So I think, you know, some of those facts give a motivation to pursue practices. And those practices might be things like engaging, you know, mindfulness practices outside. So we're kind of meditating with nature. It might be for some people, they might prefer just working with other people in a community organization outside. Uh, for others, it might be bird watching or, or sketching nature. Even some approaches like, you know, computer games, we might think that's something, you know, we're locked away in our, in our rooms, playing them uh, on our own. And it's a very kind of isolated activity, but certain games can be designed to increase our kind of sense of empathy and compassion. So there's some nice studies uh, showing kind of promising avenues in that direction as well. So I think to answer the question, there's a whole range of different practices and it's going to be different, you know, what's best for everyone. But I think what what science lends is we can start to take a kind of more evidence-based approach as to what really works, what kind of intervention works, and we can measure people's attitudes before and after. And we can start to develop this science of how we you know, develop a kind of inner change in our societies. We, we, we focused a lot in, in the last, you know, hundred years or so on, on kind of outer change in technology, but actually the kind of inner development I think has stalled perhaps uh, quite a lot. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Well, I'm not sure I'm understanding what, what facts are you talking about? What do you mean? What are some of the facts and how is it, how does it change people's mindset? When, when we've, the, the sense of uh, ourselves as, as being uh, isolated, you know, kind of feels intuitive. And, and there's an explanation behind that, because when we, we have a sense of self, and I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't have a sense of self, because if we didn't have one, we'd be kind of bumbling around and we, you know, we wouldn't be able to collate our memories, we wouldn't be able to find food. So a sense of self evolved, because it's, it's, uh, it's valuable for our survival. And, um, but actually, our cultures influence that sense of self and our education systems, you know, maybe encouraging us too much to kind of build self-esteem and see, and sell ourselves as a brand or our governments, you know, telling us, for example, Margaret Thatcher in the UK famously said, there's no such thing as society, only individuals and their families. This, and, you know, Boris Johnson, our current prime minister saying, you know, greed is good <laughs> with regards to, you know, the, our, our solutions to the pandemic, suggesting that capitalism was the kind of solution to the pandemic, forgetting the kind of important elements of collective, you know, um, solutions like mask wearing and uh, self-isolation, etc. So our cultures can really influence those mindsets. Our education system is another one. And they can really push that sense of self, you know, push the pendulum too far. And it becomes maladaptive in that context. So an, an analogy, for example, might be our evolved a, a tendency to seek out sugary or fatty foods. That, that's something that's useful when we evolved in prehistoric times, because those were scarce food sources. But actually in modern cultures where we have hyper abundance of those food sources and advertising kind of pushing us towards them, that leads to this crisis where we have, you know, a quarter of the world's population are overweight or obese, and yet there's a quarter of the world's population still still malnourished. And so, the, you know, that obesity crisis is is partly uh, driven by that maladaptive nature of our of that evolved trait that's become maladaptive or you know detrimental is another word in the modern world with our cultures. So bringing that back to the sense of self, um, that sense of self is is become maladaptive in in the modern world where we we push it too far and. And so that's, I, I believe, the way that our education systems are kind of raising us now with this very isolated sense of identity. And actually, people also are less able to experience nature. 
So because they don't have it on their doorstep, we live in, in often in urban areas, declines in, in nature and biodiversity within those areas. Sometimes parks are very far away, you know, green spaces. Well, how, how, about, how about locking people down and them experiencing nature? You know, the, the pandemic response and all that didn't seem to, to foster anyone's connection to anything, it seems. Actually, I think that there's some evidence that many people, um, I don't know, in the UK at least, and, and some countries in Europe, fa- found kind of found nature a bit more during the lockdown because they couldn't travel to their nearest mall or, you know, they actually ended up exploring their local areas a bit more and taking time to be outside a bit more because we can't be in shops and cafes. And, and actually, I think sense of nature connection may have increased in, in some cases, I mean, equally, that's balanced with mental health impacts of the lockdown as well. So it's a kind of complex pattern. Just to kind of come around to that point. So in, in the modern world, you know, our sense of self has is, is become maladaptive. And it, so it's an evolved trait that it, uh, is, has been taken too far. And I think it, it's important to, to kind of address that balance. And one of the ways to do that is to see that this sense of self is an evolved trait. And just like, you know, our tendency to seek out fatty foods we may feel like we have the urge to do that, especially if there's culture kind of advertising, pushing us towards it. But when we start to realize, ah, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of programmed this way and, there's, and these ad- advertisements are pushing my buttons, we can start to get a wiser outlook and start to step back. And I think the same is for our sense of self. You know, cultures may encourage us to be hyper-competitive and to the degree of selfishness, but actually we can take a step back and say, well, actually that's just an illusion, this sense of discrete identity. And there's also a logic that when we, see that uh, connectedness we actually act as i mentioned in a much more sustainable way looking after each other looking after the natural world so as opposed to the kind of approach where we view nature as a, an asset as a resource we instead see it as part of us and that changes quite deeply the way we relate and the way we behave towards nature it makes sense so other suggestions in the book for people not only to reconnect with nature but to help sustain it or what are some of the suggestions in the book yeah, I, I didn't want to um, be prescriptive in, in about what people do. This was very much a sort of first attempt at harnessing some of the the evidence and really uh, about our, our the illusory nature of our sense of self. And actually, that I, I really wanted to bring readers a kind of sense of awe and wonder when when we kind of hear about the science that is spread across so many disparate fields. <clears throat> and I think that's one of the issues that we have a very intelligent society in terms of you know, the level of our scientific knowledge now is huge. We have huge journal uh, journal issues devoted to very niche topics. But that kind of bridging between disciplines and the synthesis is often um, less uh, less done than, than it should be, perhaps. Um, and so actually bringing together some of these insights from, you know, neuroscience and psychology and cell biology around our sense of identity, uh, to me, that kind of gave a sense of wonder. So that was really my my aim was to sort of show people some of these this evidence in an engaging way and be, not necessarily say, and this means you should do do this. But actually, I think deeper question is about who we are and and um, do we have a view of, of our, ourselves and our in relationship with nature and, and the rest of the world, which is based on 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 sort of facts or is it something that is based on a, a fiction that's kind of allowed to to have propagated. So that was really my motivation rather than than saying, okay, here's what you can do. I mean, to, to come back to your question as an ecologist, so what can people do? I mean, there's lots we can do, you know, in terms of what we, how we buy, 
uh, what sorry how we travel and what we buy are kind of key factors because biodiversity is being lost kind of a million cuts each small action kind of accumulates and and causes this vast tidal wave of of impacts so you know every moment we're making decisions and just being a bit more mindful about the impacts of those decisions is is actually a, a kind of crucial factor that's not to say that you know regulation or policy is not important that kind of top-down approach but actually as I mentioned at the start a lot of those policies get get driven because policy makers get pushed in a certain direction because of public uh, you know popular opinion so I think changing mindsets is, is to me one of the sort of deeper deeper leverage points about how we kind of change the rules of the game and protect the natural world so what um I don't, I don't know what, what are how is this sense of self uh, important in you know in relating to nature what do you mean the illusion of self? Of self is that we we have a tendency to see ourselves as as a kind of isolated entity, like an ego, uh, you know, it, me as separate from other things out there. And actually, that identity is also the the kind of root cause of how we see things in the world as as objects. But there was a physicist, uh, David Bohm, who made the point that actually when he studied, you know, the nature of these things in terms of their physics deeply there's no such thing as a as a kind of uh, as an object in the sense that it's unchanging and it's fixed everything is in a state of flux everything is kind of interacting with other atoms and uh, you know even a bit of paper is kind of losing molecules all the time and is in the state of of decomposition even if it's albeit very slow to our kind of um scale of of perception so Bohm was suggesting, you know, we, we we shouldn't even have nouns. He was saying everything should be a verb. Everything should be in an action. Obviously, it's hard to organise a society where we can't use objects. So, you know, we can't use nouns. They're, they're a shorthand and they're a useful shorthand. But sometimes we forget they're a shorthand. And so, you know, just to give an example, we, we call someone a criminal and we say, well, that defines them. And actually, research shows from a kind of Western perspective, that's very much how we see people we give them labels and we say well that person is a criminal is bad is evil but actually um alternative cultures may you know traditional cultures from a more eastern perspective tend to see the context so they say well that person was acting bad because they didn't have their lunch or because they were mistreated as a child or because uh, the situation was such that it led them to behave that way so they're seeing that much more contextual relationship there are other really nice, interesting studies that show, for example, when you look, when you can put a fish tank and put some Western people with very Western mindsets in front of it, and they'll notice the objects in the foreground. And people from a more Eastern cultural perspective will tend to see the background more and the relationships between the objects more. So there's very different ways of viewing the world. And our reductionist kind of object orientated way is important for science. And there's no doubt that it's led to, to huge scientific advances. But now we're in the era of these kind of what people call wicked problems. So climate change, obesity, mental health crises. And it's really about understanding systemic relationships. So how the, all these different objects in the world are kind of connected and how they interact with each other. And that it requires a quite different type of understanding. So kind of system sciences and actually more a kind of wisdom based approaches to understanding how these social and ecological systems work is kind of, for me, I, I see as the next kind of level of our of our understanding. And to bring this back to the self, which you asked about, the, you know, the sense of self. So research shows that people have an ego, that's fine. 
they can also have a kind of metapersonal identity. So meta being a, a sort of higher level. So they can have an identity where they see themselves linked to other people and linked to the natural world. And when they have that sense of identity, it doesn't mean they lose the ego perspective. They can still go back to it. They can kind of flip back and forth. So they can say, oh, I see, you know, here's, here's me in my head and treating it as, as if I'm an I and I'm a separate object and the world's out there, or we can flip it and, and see ourselves as much more connected. But if you only have the ego level, you, you can't f- flip up to the metapersonal level. So I think there is an evolution in terms of our, our kind of sense of consciousness. And, and, and it's important that we make that step, because otherwise we're kind of stuck on those lower levels. And we know that highly individualistic, selfish behavior leads to, you know, the, the, the tragedy of the commons. And the loss of biodiversity, pollution of the air, pollution of the climate, pollution of the oceans, which is everything that we're seeing. So it's really important that we start to kind of make that next step in terms of our understanding. The poet T.S. Eliot made a nice quote in the 1930s, actually, where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? And for me, that kind of really sums it up in terms of, you know, not saying we don't want information, but we need to kind of synthesize it into knowledge and we need to harness that knowledge to kind of bring wisdom in our approach to the world. Well, very good. Tom, what's the best way for people to, you know, start on this journey and find out more about your work? Where can they get the book and can you restate the title? And then, you know, where can they contact you? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm really open for people, you know, getting in touch with ideas and, and reading recommendations, because I, I think that's one of the nicest things when uh, people say, I, I've heard your ideas and I like them, but have you read so-and-so? So please do get in touch. The book, my book is called uh, The Self-Delusion, The Surprising Science of How We Are Connected to Each Other and the Natural World. And I think, yeah, you can get it on Amazon or you can get it on your, lo- in your from your local bookseller who might be more likely to pay tax. Um, you can get it, you know, uh, various places like that. And yeah, my uh, I'm at University of Reading. So if you search Tom Oliver, University of Reading, uh, you'll be able to find my email address. And then, uh, yeah, if there are ideas or questions or anything, people can get in touch. Always happy to engage. Well, very good, Tom. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. No, thanks. Too. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Richard. Cheers. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.